Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. It's so good to see you. Take your Bibles if you would. And turn to 2 Peter, and as always, I want to encourage you, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, please see Dustin or Landon or I or Randy. We'd love to get you a copy of God's Word, even if it's, uh, even if it's today, because it's so important. We try to put as many of the Scriptures as we can on the monitor, but we always want to encourage you as well to bring one so you can have it with you as we go through. How many of you are old enough? Is there any child of the 90s here where you spent the, your child? Okay, do you remember Stranger Danger? What, remember it was that alien who came down and, and, he was, and it was all about to teach your children how to uh, be aware of their surroundings. And not, does anyone remember what the, that alien's name was in Stranger Danger? Anyone remember? My kids probably would. I think they just stepped out for a second. But it's like Stranger Danger. I remember watching that over and over and over. But we use those types of tools to warn our kids about it. You remember those things? And there's all sorts of ways that we remind our kids, don't cross the street without looking, do this, do things. We're always giving people warnings. We even live in this type of day of age now where everything has a warning label, right? You can't drink anything. Now we're drug companies where they do their, their drugs on or they, you know their prescriptions and medicine on TV, the, 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 all the side effects that have to be said take longer than the actual commercial just for the drug. I mean, we're all about giving warnings to people. And that's where we find ourselves as we look at 2 Peter chapter 10. And I titled this, If the Shoe Fits. If the shoe fits what? Wear it, thank you. So there's some of us that are past the 90s that might remember those old types of phrases. But we're seeing here is a warning. Peter is writing a warning not only to the New Testament church and his original readers, but he's writing to you and I that you and I, there is a warning. We need to be on the alert out, not for stranger danger, but stranger danger in the fact of false teachers who are corrupting the church from within. Not from without, but from within. In chapter 2, we learned that the theme was God's divine justice. That's what we've been looking at these last few weeks. And God's divine justice demands that he punishes the wicked, but also that he knows how to rescue the godly. So we have been warned and we have been encouraged and comfort. We are to learn that you and I are not to be discouraged when we see that evil and wicked prospers, when it seems like justice is not being done, but to be encouraged that God knows knows how to hold the wicked for justice and punishment, but also the godly for reward. But as we move on now to our next passage, as we see here, verses 10b through 16, God is now, or Peter is now going to describe the character of these false teachers. Here's how you can tell who they are. It's by their character and their behavior. And he does this as a warning so that the church would not be deceived. And so as I look at, I am about to give you something here that is your responsibility as well as the elders. You have the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, as we see in Acts. It is the church that is to protect 
and guard the church from false teachers. So this message here, coming 2,000 years from the, from the pen of Peter, is still viable and still relevant for you today. It's important that the church protect and guard the gospel and the flock from the corrupting influence. Uh, Landon just a moment ago prayed for that. We see false teachers are rising, and he says you can tell who the false teachers are. In our passage today, Peter is going to vividly describe their behavior and their character. He notes that they are shameless and accursed. He does not mince words, but he paints a word picture that points to their arrogance, their sensuality, and their greed. Peter's point is that these false teachers will be judged for their sins, but yet you and I are still to be on alert so that they may not come in and disrupt and cause divisions or mislead the people of God. So with that, let's read this passage. It's here on the monitor, but it's found in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2. Join with me in verse 10, at, the, at verse B. Bold and willful, he describes them. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme them about matters which they are ignorant. They will be also destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13 says they're suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to re re uh, revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of idolatry or adultery, excuse me, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way they have gone astray they have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor who, who loved gain from the wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness father we thank you for your goodness <clears throat> and as we take this passage help us to understand as his original readers did what is it that you're calling us as Christians, as a church, to do? Lord, let my words be ones that are edifying. Let them challenge. And Father, there may be a rebuke here as well. So let us receive it with joy and gladness as we receive the words of the Father. Sometimes they are sweet. Sometimes they are of challenge and rebuke. But let us receive them with the love that they're given. And Father, may your spirit work in us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we read this portion of scripture, we can easily compare the behavior and character of the false teachers with what Peter wrote earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you're at 2 Peter, now look at chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. You see, Peter says this, For this very reason, Christians, believers, children of God, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You and I went through this passage. We understand what he's saying. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. He says as Christians, you and I, once we accept Christ, we now need to supplement, we need to add, we need to diligently make every effort to add these types of fruits of spirit, these behaviors, these characters to our lives. We can tell who are Christians by these very qualities. Obviously, these false teachers 
are not adding to their faith these qualities as we're reading this passage of scripture. Instead, the fruit of their life is quite the opposite. Peter points out these glaring sins to point out what he had wrote earlier in that same chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verses 8 and 9, where he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might recall, this is the portion that Dustin shared with us some time ago. We see that Christians will not be effect, ineffective or unfruitful if they add these qualities. It helps us to grow. It helps us to be fruitful. But yet these men, these women are ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Now there's a difference. And we saw this in Sunday school. Again, I want to give you just a, a quick commercial. Come to uh, Sunday school, our adult core class, 945 to 1030. It seems like every time, though we don't plan this, one seems to lead right into the other. And what we were looking at this morning was a man named Charles Finney, who was known by some to be a hero of the faith, while others call him a heretic. He was very successful. And for him, success meant wisdom. If I'm successful, that must mean I'm wise. However, I bring in a lot of people, then it must be wise. And well, we know that's not true. But here he's saying here that they are not wise in the knowledge of the Lord. They may be successful, but it doesn't equal wisdom. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and they're blind, forgotten that he was cleansed. And what we see these false teachers are nothing like what the believers that Peter has been describing. Now, I want to take some time to go through this passage in a little more detail. That's why I want to make sure you have your Bibles and you turn here to 2 Peter. But before we want to do, I want to point out that these false teachers are not Christians. Whatever their profession of faith may be, they are not true believers. Peter is warning his readers to be on, on alert for these type of men and women who profess to be Christians, yet whose character and behavior proves otherwise. In other words, I want to, again, we are not saved by our behavior. We are not saved by our character. But yet our character and our, and our fruit will show whether or not we truly have been born again. Now, this can be difficult. How can you and I tell whose profession of faith is true or not? How do we know when someone comes and says, hey, I've accepted Christ, or when we baptize, we baptize, which is usually how we make a confession of faith. How do we know that person is true? You and I all know people who have said, yes, I believe in Christ, but yet their lives don't match up. So how do we know? How can we tell? How can I judge the motives of one person's heart? Does not Jesus command us not to judge? Do you know what the most quoted and most famous verse in scripture is today? Anyone want to take a guess? Judge not, lest you be judged. Matthew 7, 7. It used to be John three sixteen. We all remember the guy with the uh, rainbow afro at the games, you know, holding up John three sixteen. But now the most famous verse by non-believers by the world is judge not. That you or judge not that you be judged. Do not judge. In our society, the highest sin that you can do is to judge someone. However, you and I must read through the rest of that passage to understand what Jesus is truly teaching in the context. Let me give you a fuller understanding of what follows after that command. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. In other words, he says, look how you evaluate someone. If you evaluate someone by their looks, 
that's how you'll be judged. If you evaluate someone with this hard stick, then that's how you will be judged by. He says, with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. But then he goes on to say, enter by the narrow gate. And he even goes on to say in verse uh, 11, I believe of that chapter, probably, well, well, actually, verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. He says, but they're inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from a thistles? The answer is simply what? No, of course not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. You and I understand this. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear uh, good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This you will recognize them by their fruit. So we see from Scripture there is a way in which you and I can do so. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So though you and I may not be called to judge others, for we cannot see into the motives and the dimensions of the heart, you and I are called to be fruit inspectors. Called to be fruit inspectors. The role of the church is to inspect each other. To encourage each other to pursue godliness and holiness. To deny ourselves and take up our cross. One of the purposes of church membership, and again, we're coming to that time of the year where we want to encourage you. If you've considered membership, this is the time to do it. If you have not, then I would call you to, to consider church membership. One of the purposes of church membership is to gauge the profession of faith of each other. Though we may not be able to peer into the heart of each everyone, each and each and every one of us, it may be easy to be and it may be easy to be deceived by false believers. Scripture has given you and I a measuring tool. One that I believe is uh, that we can use today is that of the great commandment. The great commandment is not only a command, but it's a tool how you and I could measure whether or not one is a true believer or not. Now, as you look on the monitor, you'll see that the great commandment is found in Matthew 22. Someone comes to Jesus and says, what's the great commandment? Of the 10 commandments, of the 613 that are listed in the Old Testament, which one is the greatest? You see the words of Jesus. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he says, depend all the law and the prophets. So in other words, all of scripture hangs on love the Lord your God with all that is within you and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I propose for you today, if we are to guard and protect our church from false teachers, from those who make a false profession, from coming in and influencing us, then the measuring tool that will inspect their fruit is with the great commandment. Do they love God and do they love others? And what we're going to see is that these, the, in these false teachers, they fail to love God and to love others. And this is going to prove that their profession of faith is false and that they must be dealt with. Now, as a church and as people, we don't like conflict. But in the church, anytime you have a group of people, there we must get past that fear, that reluctance to do so. 
Because as we see here and as we'll see next week, that false teachers, those who have false profession of faith, those that are described as we're going to see here, can do much harm, not only to themselves, not only to the body of Christ, but to the testimony of Christ himself. And so with that, I want to give you three ways that these false teachers, these false believers disregard each other or disregard the great commandment. The first one is, it's found in the first part of the verse or the passage. We see that their arrogance lead them to disregard their own sin. Their own arrogance leads them to disregard their own sin. Look back at chapter or verse 10b. He says, they're bold and willful. And they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Look as angels, though greater in might and power than these men, do not pronounce a blasphemy judgment against them before the Lord. He goes on to describe them as irrational animals, creatures of instinct. You know, Peter describes these men as bold and willful. Theologian Thomas Schreiner notes that these false teachers were blessed with an extraordinary confidence. But unfortunately, this confidence was not leavened with wisdom or humility. And I hate to paint with a general brush, but a bold and willful and arrogance and overconfidence sometimes can pretty much point out to those who do not regard others with love, including God. Peter writes that their arrogance is demonstrated by their willingness to blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this is a, an interesting passage that I don't want to spend a lot of time because it sometimes can be tough. Who are these glorious ones that they're blaspheming? Well, again, I'd like to go to Dr. Schreiner, who helps us understand that Peter refers to their action as those who were probably the evil angels that he spoke of several weeks ago. Those who had left heaven to come and intermarry with human women. They dismiss any thought. What happens in doing so, in blaspheming these ones, what they do is they recklessly dismiss any thought that these demonic forces have any power or that their willful sins will open them up to demonic attack. In other words, they think that they're greater than even the angels. Now you and I have to remember, even an angel that has fallen is much greater in power and might than you and I. And so in other words, they, they seem to think that they're still superior in some form or fashion. But good angels, like wise humans, do not take these evil powers lightly. In other words, these false teachers' arrogance leads them to accuse the rebellious angels of sinning while dismissing their own sin. You, or using the rebellious actions of these fallen angels to justify their own. Well, if they can do this, then what's wrong with us living a life that is similar? Peter knows that this bold and willful attitude is arrogant and that the faithful angels themselves dare not speak judgment against rebellious angels. In Jude chapter 1, verse 9, we see this himself when the archangel Michael contending with the devil while disputing with the, about the body of Moses did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan, but said, the Lord will rebuke you. In other words, Michael, who is the great warrior angel, would not even rebuke Satan himself. He leaves it up to God. Yet these false teachers openly display their hypocrisy and their ignorance, leading Peter to liking them. And think of this phrase. Look at, look at the picture he paints. Irrational animals. Creatures of instinct. 
born to be caught and destroyed. This is not a good description of these men. In other words, they're like irrational animals that are driven by their primal instincts operating on the basis of their desires and feelings instead of reason. In other words, whatever their base instinct, they want to eat, they want to drink, they want to consume, they want to mate. That's what they want to do. Now what we see here, just as a hunter uses the primal instincts of an animal to hunt them, if you're an, I don't know if anyone's here a hunter, I'm not, but if you're a hunter, I've read, you go to places where they're going to, where they're going to find water, where they're going to find food, where they're going to find shelter. And so once you know what their instinct is, it makes it easier to hunt, to catch them. They, animals don't think with reason as you and I do. And that's what he's like in them. He says, these men are so base in their desires that you can find them and follow them. He says, just like a hunter knows the primal instincts and hunts an animal, Satan uses, his, uses their passions to catch and destroy them. Satan's trap is our own passions and desires. James, the half-brother of Jesus, warns that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own what? Evil desires. Satan knows exactly what our instinct is, what our base desire is, and we tend to do that. You and I know, know this and understand it. We sin and we're like, why am I doing this? Why do I continue to fall into this nasty habit or this sin? I know that it's destroying me, but yet what comes is reason falls out and we follow our basic instinct. We're like irrational animals. Knowing no shame, these teachers are objects of God's wrath and are fodder for the hells or the flames of hell. Paul warned in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Their arrogance and ignorance will be on full display at the day of judgment. A day, by the way, that they proclaim will not happen. But Paul warned in Romans 1 that although people knew who God was, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And since, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. So the fruit that you and I see is they disregard their own sin. They see their sin as something that is given to them to, jo to enjoy. And like irrational animals that just go straight to the dirt, so do they. The second way we see this is their insatiable appetite for sensuality leads them to disregard other believers. Their appetite leads them to disregard other believers. Again, we're looking at how the great commandment can be used as a measuring tool to identify false teachers or false believers. And what we see is they disregard others. There is no love for others. Let me tell you, think about this. Almost every sin that you and I commit involves someone else. Typically. Now you may say, wait a second, no it doesn't. Well, if you're married, it affects your wife in some way. It affects your children, let me tell you. One day you will wake up and find that out. Some of you might say, yes, I understand. I'm living, I have scars 
of how my sin affected my children, affected my spouse, affected my business, affected my work. But you and I must realize this, that sin is not just a personal pursuit. It may be a personal pursuit, but it affects many others. Look at what it says. They counted a pleasure in verse 13b to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Think of that phrase. We're going to look at that in a moment. They have eyes full of idolatry, insatiable for sin. They enticed unsteady souls. Peter is painting with great adjectives and great adverbs to give us a look at these men. There are horrible men who are using others for their own purposes. Peter notes that the evil for the false teachers is an all-day affair. They shamelessly gorge themselves day and night, seeking to satisfy their fleshly appetites. They're not like others who seek the cover of darkness. But no, they're, they're ready to go as soon as they wake up in the middle in the morning. Ready to go and to, and, and to uh, consume the prophet Isaiah warned those who were relentless in seeking sinful passions when he said, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Now it may, may be more than just strong drink. Maybe it's pornography for you. Maybe it's just greed. Maybe it's just consuming some other thing. But what we see is woe to them that seek after these things. Their eyes never to cease to sin. They are always looking for ways to engage in their passions and their desires. Peter paints the picture of men who looked upon women as objects to be consumed, devoured, and conquered rather than cherished, protected, and loved as sisters in Christ. Now, I want to take off the prophetic jacket here for a moment and put on a pastoral one. And I apologize. Well, I won't apologize, but I'm going to get a little bit uncomfortable. Because men, he's describing us. If you're struggling with porn, if you're struggling with lust, if you look at every woman and you consider her in some type of way, we have done that. We have taken our sisters and daughters in Christ and we have made them objects of our consummation, of desiring to conquer them. That's what pornography does. Whether it's on a magazine or whether it's on a soft porn type corn on TV or whether it's in uh, whatever that show is on HBO, I lost it. Someone knows it, but you're just not going to say it now. But you know what I'm talking about. Some fancy Games of Thrones or whether it's on your phone. What you're doing is you're disregarding someone's daughter, someone's wife someone's sister. We're like these men. Now I want to challenge you, we cannot do so. Because that type of behavior will get you to consider even the ladies here and you're in church today, you will start to consider them as objects. This is what fuels sex trafficking, child trafficking. But women, let me not get you alone either or get you off in this part, I'm all over the place. I don't like this type of topic. But you do the same thing because we want to say that women viewing pornography is growing. And it's so accessible. And I want to challenge you, do not fall into the world's temptation to consider men the way that men consider women. 
and it finds itself in romance novels. Things of 50 shades of gray. Things of that nature. We must be careful. Now let me take that off and put this back on. You and I need to remember that Peter is warning the church about these false teachers' conduct inside the church community. Not that their conduct is restrained or limited to only the church community, but that their main influence and opportunities were in the church. They were like Amway that comes in and tries to divide the church by drawing circles and get everyone inside. And this is what they're doing. This is why he writes that their blots and blemishes, their conduct is harming the testimony of the church in the eyes of the lost. But it was also harming those inside the church. Peter remarks that they revel and, and celebrate in deceiving others, especially when he says, in the love feast of the church. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to go through this very quickly because time is going away from us. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in those days, communion or, large, or the Lord's Supper, including sharing a meal together, similar to what we would do, but they did it all as a one event. These were described as love feasts in the first century. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes and warns the church of Corinth about not honoring one another in the love feast. And again, that's our point, is that these false teachers are disregarding loving each other. In verse 17 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, But in the following instructions I do not command you, because when you come together it is not for the better, for the worse. In other words, when you come together it should be good, but it's not. He says, you're sinning in your coming together. Let's go on. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. But then he goes on in verse 19, says that there must be factions because factions show who's genuine or not. Let's go on to verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So in those days, it was like a potluck. People would bring their own meal. But what was happening here, very quickly, is that they would not wait for each other. In other words, the rich, who did not work outside the home, would have these great meals brought, and they would come. But what's happening is those people in the church, those believers who were poor, who had to work in the fields, they're working till late at night, then having to buy their food, then have to prepare it and come. Now, what they would bring, obviously, would be much more... Um, plain, not as fancy. And what's happening, instead of them taking their meals and enjoy it all together, is that the rich would come sit down and eat all their good meal, not waiting for those that were still working. That's what's happening here. He says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That's what's happening but then as we go in verse 23, we see the very purpose of the church. And when he says, from what I delivered to you, that Christ died for us. And then he gives him what you and I say, take the body and take the eat. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death. So the purpose of coming together was to proclaim the Lord's death. But they had made it a feast of a party instead of a feast for Christ. 
And he warns them, whoever eats, in verse 27, whoever eats and drinks of this bread unworthily will be guilty. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But he goes on to verse 33, and he finally gives them instructions on how to conduct themselves. So then, when you come together, wait for one another. Simple instruction. Just wait. Wait for those that are poor, who are just bringing their food. Just don't gorge yourself and get drunk with all your fine food. Wait for them and share your meal with them. Very simple instructions. Because why a church is to be a loving body together. Not a chance to humiliate one about what we're wearing or what we're eating or what we're driving. He says, for anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it'll be not for judgment. In other words, if you're so hungry that you can't wait, then eat something. Drop by McDonald's and grab a hamburger before you come. Take care of yourself. Then when you're here together, then you can enjoy each other. The issue that Paul is writing of is loving God by remembering what Christ had accomplished on our behalf and to love others in sharing a meal together. Communion is a time of reflection, worship, honor. It is family time. Instead of loving each other during this special time, the false teachers were not only seeking their own pleasure, but also professing to be Christians, part of the family of God, when in truth they were imposters. So in other words, they were in there saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But they weren't. That's why when we take communion, we very clearly state who should take it and who should not. Now that doesn't mean someone takes it who shouldn't. But that just means that they're deceiving not only themselves, but they're trying to deceive us of whether or not they truly are a child of God. As members of the church, he says that they were blots and blemishes. And they were staining and defiling the testimony of the church as they were taking communion together. Not only did they see, seek to deceive the rest of the church community, but they actively sought to entice unsteady souls. And that's something you're going to have to know about sinners and sin. It doesn't want to be lonely. It wants to encourage others to join in. The word entice there is actually translated from the Greek word that means bait. The same bait that you would use in fishing. And their plan was to bait others into sin by targeting the unstable and weak. They were predators, seeking the weak, seeking those that they could transform or convince into themselves to, to join them. Instead, Scripture tells us that we're to love each other by admonishing the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak and be patient. But they saw it as a way to consume and conquer those people. Hence why he says that you must be careful in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, For among them are men who creep in a household and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. He says, Do not be like those men, ever searching but never coming to the truth. Peter, like Paul, is describing these false teachers so that you and I as a church can plainly see through their false profession of faith and deceitfulness. And so they disregard their own sin, and then they disregard others by causing them to sin and join in their sin. That's not a love for others. Romans tells us the night is gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Paul tells us to walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put on no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Peter, like Paul, says we need to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, pursuing holiness and godliness with all that is within us and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. But these men had no, dis, had no regard for others. And let me challenge you for those that would cause you to sin or entice you to sin. You may think that they love you, but they do not. That's not a true love. Then number three, third reason that we use the great commandment as a measuring tool is that their greed leads them to disregard God himself. Look at verse 14c. They have hearts that are trained in greed. They are cursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam and the son of Beor, who we read with Randy, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. He's likening these men to a prophet who's just struck with madness. He's blind and cannot see the angel of the Lord. Only the donkey could see. Peter writes that they have a fully developed habit of greed. Now I want you to listen to this just a moment. Because as soon as I say greed, then you just kind of go away saying, well, I don't struggle with greed. But here's what greed is. Greed is a debt that says God owes me or I owe myself. Now it's not about being rich or how much money you have. We think of greedy as just the 1%. But the greedy is the 100%. Because it's not about how much you have. It's about how you think of the money you have or the material wealth that God has given. I want more. I need more. And what I have is for me. That's what greed truly is. And these men had a heart of greed that led them to disregard what God had given them. Their desire is for more, for more, for more. Peter now gives the example of Balaam. In scripture, Balaam is an example of a malicious, dangerous, poisonous, and destructive influence of hypocritical teachers who attempt to lead God's people astray. You will see Balaam in the Old and New Testament alike several different times. And he's always used for people who were greedy, who enticed others into sin. I want to just give a summary. We've already read in our scripture reading about him. He was hired to curse Israel. Instead, he was, he was compelled to bless them by God. He goes back home and nothing is heard of him until Numbers 31, when all of a sudden, in an attack by Israel, Balaam is killed. Why is he killed and judged by God? Well, because Balaam desired the financial reward from Balak. He really wanted that. But Balak said to get that, you must curse the people of God. Balaam eventually wanted to do that, but yet God prevented him three times. But yet he still sought to go. Now he did do what God had called him to do. And we say, oh, that's great. He must have been a wonderful man. But yet what we see is that his desire for that greed caused him to come to another solution. Since he could not cause them or, or, or curse them, he went to Balak and said, I have a plan. 
He's identified as one who's greedy and he caused Israel to sin. Look at Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and if you're a quick turner, you can go there in chapter 12. Though this is not specified in the book of Numbers, we find that Balaam's action in John's letter to the church in Pergamum. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write this, You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But in verse 14 he says this, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, food sacrificed to the idols and practice sexual immorality. What he did here is he said, listen, Balak, I cannot curse them, but here's what you need to do. You need to send your women, the Moabite women, the ones that are attractive, send them down with food. Man, there's six million Jews down there. They're going to want some women. They're hungry. They've been in the desert for a long time. He says, you get in there, seduce those men, and what will happen is they'll start to worship the idols of those women. And we see through Scripture, that's what Israel did each and every time. And so in this way, this is what Balak did, and he caused many of Israel to sin and caused many of them to be judged and put to death. That was Balaam's teaching. Well, I, I'm greedy. I, I can't do this. But you know what? God said I couldn't do this. And so he actually used the word of God against him, knowing that they were not to intermarry with women from other, other, other nations. Balaam went astray from the word of God. He knew what God wanted him to do. Bless Israel. But he found a loophole. Seduced by the money of the Moabite king, he devised a way to obey God, right? But yet still get the reward. Now God spared his life with the talking, talking, talking donkey the first time. But Balaam eventually paid the price of his sin. One theologian remarks that the false teachers like Balaam were unprincipled purveyors of teachings that would ensure their own comfort and security. And so when we look at this picture, we're seeing men who are ignorant, ignorant, or ignorant, arrogant. We see men who are, who are insatiable appetites to encourage others into it. They don't love others. In the end, they don't love God. They use God to serve their own needs. Peter is writing that these false teachers must be rejected and their teachings repudiated, dismissed, and thoroughly squashed. When you take these men and mirror them up with the great commandment, they fail in all three ways. And this is where I'd like for us to end today. You and I as a church are called to protect and guard our community here. We must not allow false teachers to prey upon our members. This will be difficult. They will be gregarious, friendly, smooth, and charming. But just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, you and I must recognize so may they. We must be alert, ready to inspect the fruit of each other. I would call you to inspect my fruit, Dustin's fruit, Randy and Landon's, any teacher that we have. This is for you today. 
For we can stray from the way of God just as they could. That's why we pray for one another. We encourage one another. We submit to our leaders. All these things that God's called us to do. I'm saying for you as the church today, you have a role, an active role to play as a member of this church. Is protect and guard one another. Not that you and I should have our eyes alert looking for every man. Is he looking at that woman too much? Is he talking to her too much? He hasn't called us to be witch, uh, what's that uh, word, uh, I don't know, witch hunt. But we need to consider each and everyone's life. And to build each other up. That we may encourage and strengthen in the call of God. As the worship team comes up, I'd like for you just to bow your head and close your eyes. I don't know where I went this morning with this message. I'll be interesting to hear it. But I want us to pause to consider and pray and respond to the Holy Spirit. For you and I must search and examine our own heart for any arrogance, any sensuality or any greed that might lurk under the surface of our hearts. And that's eating away of our soul. You and I must pray, Father, restrain my appetite. Strengthen me for the battle. Let me look unto my sisters as sisters in Christ, not as objects. Women, let us read and let us consider our spouse and our husbands not as idols, but as gifts from God. We need to pray that God will convict us of any sin that might prevent us from supplementing our faith with the qualities that Peter has called us to. We must repent and confess that God may grant us forgiveness for our sins. And we must be on alert for any who might attempt to entice us to join them in their sin. Above all, God has called us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and our might and our neighbor as ourself. If you and I would strive to do that through the power of the Spirit and the obedience to God's word, God will protect and per preserve us in him. Father, thank you for this. Help us to see that there are many times, Lord, that we can become complacent in our guard, in our protection, not only of the church and of each other, but even in our own heart. So, Father, let us see that the great commandment is something that we ought to actively be doing. But it's also a tool in which we can evaluate those who would come and would, would dare to teach or those who would dare to come and seek influence within our body. Let us do this out of love and a desire to please you. And I thank you that you have given us a, a good church here with good people who desire you and love you. Father, may that always be so. But above all, let us edify and encourage one another with the words from your, from your letter. We praise in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.